you have your Bible with you or a Bible from one of the chairs nearby or your Bible app, you can go to Revelation 9 is where we find ourselves, near the back of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, chapter 9 today. <clears throat> and we'll mention a few other places as we, as we go through this message. If you want to use the inside of your program, there's some space to take notes. If you have reflections you want to share with me or questions, uh, follow-up, you want to use that Connect card, or if you're online, you can comment and let us know a question or, or follow-up you have, but uh, feel free to use that as we go through our message today, and uh, we'll be in Revelation 9. Well, uh, this message made me think about what, what, what can cause a person to turn to God? Uh, maybe you've thought about that for your own life. What, what caused you to turn to God? Uh, is, it, is it joy that causes a person to turn to God? Seeing something so beautiful, right? And perhaps for some it is. They, they see something deeply beautiful or deeply joyful, and it helps them connect with God. But for others, it could be pain. It could be desperation. Feeling utterly helpless or perhaps even ashamed of something that causes a person to open their eyes to the Lord. C.S. Lewis, a great thinker of the 20th century, wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. Right? I've talked to a lot of people in my years of ministry, and I haven't heard a lot of people say, you know, I really grew, grew through that easy period of my life. I hear people say, man, God really grew me when I lost my spouse or when I went through this hard time at my work and when I didn't have an answer to prayer. God's really faithful that way, right? He doesn't waste our sorrows, as one author said. Tim Keller, the humble and powerful pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City who died just last month in, in May, he he wrote these things about pain and suffering. He has a book about it, if you find it. It's very good. But he wrote these things. When pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but that we never were. Suffering is actually at the heart of the Christian story, he said. And he continued and said, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows. Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. Hmm. Well, one of the difficult gifts of the Bible, and we are seeing it as we go through Revelation, is that it tells us the truth about present and future suffering and the future consequences of human selfishness. It tells us the truth that there are some who will not surrender control of their soul, no matter what level of joy or pain they experience. And today we're gonna hear from Revelation 9 of God's unfolding plan. And may we have ears to hear God's voice calling us to faith, repentance, and obedience. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, may they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, dear Lord. For you are truly our rock and redeemer. You are 
our author and perfecter. You alone should we rightly fear. We should be in awe of you, God. You alone should we fully follow. You alone should our lives be founded upon. I pray that your people listening here and online, wherever they are, whatever they're going through, that they'd be praying for themselves, that they'd rightly hear whatever you have for us today. Help us to pray as we listen, as your spirit speaks, Lord. And would they be praying for me that I, I might use words in my speech, but that, that I would just be communicating your truth, Lord. Help them to pray for me and other preachers as we seek to be your servants. Ultimately, Lord, we want you glorified. So may you be glorified in this message today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, let's do some context and catch up on Revelation. And if you uh, need to catch up on the messages, you can always go to PalouseChurch.org or our YouTube.com Palouse Church channel and catch up on previous messages. Probably don't do that in your seat today. The noise will get annoying. But, uh, but you can do that if you've missed some of the, the messages previously. So what, what have we seen or heard so far? Well, we, we, we are seeing this vision vision message experience that has been given from Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. And John is an elderly leader of this early Christian movement. He's been exiled onto the island of Patmos for being a Christian leader, and the Roman government at that time doesn't like that. And so we see this vision, we hear it unfold as we read it, and in the first couple of chapters, we hear messages given from Jesus to the the seven churches of Asia Minor, and five of the seven need some correction, and two of the seven receive only encouragement from Jesus, and those two are the ones, interestingly enough, that are being persecuted. After the messages to the churches, we see in chapter 4, we start to see a vision of the throne room of God in eternity. And it is wild and beautiful. There are angels, there are flying creatures that are serving God. There are 24 elders seated around the throne of God. And it's an amazingly beautiful scene with all kinds of colors and description that we heard. And there's a special scroll that, that is announced that it has been sealed with seven seals. And no one, no one in the heavenlies can open this, this special scroll, can break the seals. No one except the Lion of Judah, it's announced, who is also the Lamb. A lamb that looks like it's been slain but is alive. And this lamb, we learn, is the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the lamb is worthy to open the scroll and there's worship in heaven and the seals begin to be opened and as they do, we see some intense stuff, right? We see four different colored horses connected to the opening of the first four seals and they bring with them different challenges to earth and its residents. And then in chapter seven, we hear of four angels restraining the four winds and we hear of 144,000 people from the tribes of Israel. But just as we hear about that, John sees a great multitude beyond count, right? Myriads of myriads is the literal words for it. Uh, From every tribe, language, culture. And they're standing before the throne and the lamb and they're clothed in white robes. And it's, it's just an intense scene if you were to imagine it. And we're told that in, in Revelation 7, 14, that these, these myriads of myriads, hundreds of millions, are ones that are coming out of the earth, out of the great tribulation that is upon the earth that is being described as the seals are being opened. And then we get to chapter 8, and the seventh seal begins to be opened, which is quite a process, we learn, right? 
and it, it starts first with silence as preparation and perhaps a warning. There's silence in heaven for about a half an hour, it says, right? And then there's these seven angels that are each given a trumpet. So that's seven trumpets, and the angels each begin to blow their trumpet, and with each one we hear of destruction that comes upon the earth. Just like the previous chapter where there was four horses, there's now, in chapter 8, there's a, there's a set of four trumpets before the final three woes that are to come. Now, we should know that, that, that these things that are being uh, revealed to John and to the churches and to the church, these things to come are, are future things and things that are overlapping and reinforcing each other, if you want to put it that way. So when do the horses end and when do the trumpets start in real time in history? Uh, I don't know if I can answer that with a month and date, but they're, they're, they're definitely part of the unfolding plan of God. It's hard for us who live inside of time to understand the eternal working out of God's plan, right? It, it, it's hard, but God is graciously giving us this gift of knowing that there are some things to come in his plan. And in the midst of all this, in the midst of overwhelming images that many of you have told me, hey, Pastor, this is overwhelming me. I did what you said. I read this, and, and I don't know if I liked it or I was overwhelmed. And to many of you, I said, good, right? And you're like, what kind of pastor is this? Okay, yeah, the point of Revelation is to be overwhelmed. Do you think the first listeners in those churches understood it immediately? They may have understood some of the references that we don't, but I think immediately they were overwhelmed with the intensity and probably once they settled down, said, let's hear that again. <laughs> let's hear what God's saying again. And we need to hear it again. So anyway, it is overwhelming. It is intense. But it also is instructive. It, it teaches us some important lessons, some that we're going to hear today about how sovereign God is. But it also teaches us how caring God is. In the midst of all these overwhelming messages, we keep hearing that God, God's collecting the prayers of his people. That's one of the really powerful images. He's up there, there's, there's golden bowls in heaven and some, in some beautiful way he's mixing the prayers of God's people with, with his plan. And he, it tells us that he cares about his people and even as the destruction comes, it also tells us that he's protecting his people in, in certain ways. He's sealing his people, watching out for them. So with all that as background or preparation, we're going to be in Revelation 9. If you're in your Bible, you can follow along. I'm going to read the ESV version, Revelation chapter 9, and we'll pick up with the fifth angel, starting with the first verse of that chapter. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were all darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their, 
their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lions' teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as their king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels, who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was Twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's again that number, myriad, myriad. Twice times 10,000 times 10,000. And I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. And it it teaches us about the sovereignty of God. In a nutshell, the sovereignty of God means God is in charge and we definitely aren't, right? God is in charge, and we definitely aren't. And the scriptures tell us that God is good, but God defines good, and it's really important that we don't try to take that over. Humans have been trying to take over the definition of good and evil since the Garden uh, of Eden, and it doesn't work out for us. God is in control, and God is good. And over God's universe, we need to be real. Not just good exists, but evil exists, right? And so one of the great questions is, if you Christians say there is a good God, why is there evil, right? Or why do bad things happen? And we shouldn't run away from that question. It's an important question. It's one to engage folks who are thinking about the faith, thinking about the scriptures. Yeah, there is evil. There is brokenness. There is suffering. And we believe in a God who's powerful, who's sovereign. And so God, though, is not evil. God does not author evil, but evil exists. And some see a huge contradiction there, right? So what do we do with that? Well, the scriptures have many things that teach us about this. We've got to start with what we're saying here, that God is sovereign. Can't surrender that. That's just true. God is God. No one else is God. God's in charge. 
But God does rule over a universe where in God's wisdom, God has allowed evil to exist. He's allowed us to have free choices that lead to evil things. He allowed that tree to be in the garden of evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He allowed Adam and Eve to have that choice as one of our first stories, right? And we can't deny that. So God has been trying to tell us from the beginning, I'm a good God, but I'm telling you what to do and not to do, but you are gonna choose to do different than what I say, and that is what invents or brings in evil, and then it's unleashed, and it has its own force and ability. And not just at the human level, but we believe that this happened in the spiritual realm where God created beings who had choice or you know, who, who had independent agency who could make choices to worship God or not. And some of those beings, some of those angels, messengers of God, chose not to give God glory, but bring glory to themselves, like Satan, right? And so God has allowed beings in his created world, because God is a loving God, because God is all wise, he allowed beings, spiritual and human, to make choices that are opposite of his will. And the definition of evil, one good definition, is anything opposite to God's will, right? And so we are the ones that bring that in. Angelic beings that don't bring God glory bring evil in. And so evil, yes, it's real, but underneath God's sovereignty. And it's not gonna be real in the eternal sense because he's gonna get rid of it. So it's temporarily real. It's not as real as God's love, in a sense. Because one day it's not gonna exist, and it didn't exist with God in eternity past. It exists in this realm of history now. So the sovereignty of God means God is in charge over everything, right? And and God has allowed evil and suffering. God allowed those angels who chose not to glorify him. God allows people to not follow him, right? And I would just say thinking about that is kind of amazing and terrifying at the same time for me. Uh, I spent some time saying, wow, it's amazing that God is so secure, right? I'm gonna create beings who don't worship me, though I'm God and eternal and all wise, you know, let them let come to it in an honest relationship and really come in a relationship with me, but they don't have to. They can go their own way. They can try to live apart from me. And he even did that with spiritual beings. That's amazing, but it's terrifying because the consequences of living apart from God in eternity are pretty severe, right? Because I don't know if you've tried to figure out how you're going to exist after you die, but I, I've tried to figure that out. And without God, I don't have a plan for after I die. I don't know. I don't know what Satan's thinking, but I don't know what humans are thinking either. What is your plan without a God after you die? And most people who don't believe in God say, well, there's just not going to be anything. Okay. Okay. Well, back to the text. Note that it says that they saw a star fall from heaven to earth. And the ancient and popular still today understanding of this, and I agree with it, is that this fallen star represents the evil one represents Satan, and, and Jesus said as much in one of the Gospels that he saw Satan falling, right? A star falling. It, it is depicting the evil one. And, and God, don't make any mistake about this, God gives Satan authority to unlock the bottomless pit of destruction and to unleash these heinous locusts. He, he, this is part of what he allows and allows the the tormenting of those who don't know God. And it also says, though, that God protects those who know him, or we could put it another way, God protects those who want his protection and says to others, if you don't want my protection, 
Go with your protection plan. It will not be good enough to save you from that star who fell from heaven, Satan, and those forces that he unleashed, these terrible demonic forces that are described as super locusts or whatever you want to describe them. I don't think they're just bugs, folks. These are demonic forces of evil. And, and so there are these targets of evil torture. And it's so bad that one of the descriptions we're given is that they want to die, but they can't die or death flees from. I think we're almost in this culture now where we, we want to die, but we also just want to keep on extending life. Right? And we don't know what's, or the, the folks who want to die, they don't know what's after death, so they're not secure enough in their soul to die, but they don't want the life that they have anymore. That's a terrible place to be, right? When you believe life is all there is and you're hanging on to your so-called sovereignty, but you're being tormented. God doesn't actually want that, but he's wanting people to wake up and turn to him. So he allows it because he's sovereign and he's allowing these other people to, to have their own sovereignty that's not real sovereignty, that they might wake up and turn to him. And so he allows the locusts and death that we see in this scripture, these super locusts. These, these, they're not specifically working for God if you followed the chain of events. He, he gives the key to the evil one. The bottomless pit is opened up and they, they are going out and they're torturing. But he is sovereign over all of that. And they are spiritual beings is my interpretation. And you might think I'm wacko for that, but I haven't seen locusts like this. Have you seen locusts like this? This, this is some intense stuff, right? But they also, God is still in control, and they are restrained by God. They can only torment for a season, five months, and they can't torment God's people. Now, that doesn't mean that in this age, God's people will have no pain or something, but they won't be allowed to go through the pains that people who don't know God have. Christians, people who follow God, have, have the knowledge of the forgiveness of Christ, for example, and that can't be taken away from us. So we can't suffer from from unforgiveness or we can't suffer from thinking that God's presence isn't with us we we can't have his blessing taken from us we are protected now when we hear these descriptions we would have different things come to mind maybe you had some military images come to mind or other violent things come to your mind from movies or something we we live in a very different age than the first audience right they might have thought of parthian armies to the east who were really good at riding horses forward by shooting but shooting backwards and 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 some of them had long hair so they might have thought of those those tough warriors I, they they would have had different images and through the ages christians would have had different images and said "Ooh, that reminds me of these folks right and, and I think we should be careful of saying, who exactly are these locusts? Or, oh, I know these locusts are, you know, Abram's tanks or whatever you think they are. Um, I'm not sure we know what they are yet, but we know they're not good. And, and, and what I think the church, if you're a believer here today and you hear this story and you say, what can this do for me? <laughs> Is one, be thankful for God's protection. Now and in the future, God God doesn't save us from all pain or every disease as believers, but God does give a special protection to his people and, and our souls if we just rest in him. Be still and know that he is God, the ancient psalm said, right? He is our great shepherd who leads us to green pastures and, and still waters. He restores our soul. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. We have nothing to fear, right? And so we go through stuff, but we have a protection 
of his presence and his peace. So number one, as we read tough images, whether it's present stuff to come or future stuff, let's be thankful for the real protections we have through Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit. Number two, as we read this as believers and we see this unfolding plan of God's future and we see the reality of evil, number two thing we should get out of this, I think, is let's be motivated to share the good news. Do we want anybody to go through this? No. Does God really even want them to go through this? No, but, but he's allowing the consequences of evil and brokenness. But he's telling the church way in advance, because this was first given almost 2,000 years ago, hey, let's be telling the world. And that's what the church has done through the centuries, is let's tell people of the protection in Jesus Christ, of relationship in Jesus Christ, of the eternal future you can have with him. You don't have to live in fear or shame or anxiety or doubt about what happens to you after you die. You, you can have all those big questions answered and your soul at peace if you just surrender your sovereignty to the true God. And so the second thing we should see is it should motivate us to share while we yet have time, okay? Now, when that sixth trumpet is blown, we see there, there have been four angels that must have been bound. And, and in a previous chapel, chapter, we see that there was four winds that were restrained. And some people think these four bound angels were the previously mentioned four winds. Okay? But whatever, they're, they're now released. And then it says one-third die. One-third of mankind dies. Okay? Now, one-third, I don't think, is an exact mathematical killing down to the exact person. I mean, I could be proven wrong in the end. Well, well you and I can talk about it. But I, it, based on comparison of, of ancient apocalyptic writings that, that I've been reading other scholars talk about, uh, one-third was actually a small number. It actually is trying to communicate that God is, is using restraint. And just think about some of the apocalyptic movies we have. Think of Planet of the Apes, for crying out loud. Or some other movie where way more than a third dies, right? The whole universe dies and there's just a spaceship of people that survive. We have a lot of stories like that now, right? Those are apocalyptic type stories. And so we think this crazy age of having these stories of world destruction, we still do it, okay? And we often kill way more humans in our stories than God did in this story. And this is the true story. So in other ancient Jewish apocalyptic stories, it was often two-thirds that were killed, not one-third. So this is actually a story, whether we hear it or not as modern people of the 21st century, putting it in its historical context, it is a story of restraint and mercy, comparatively. Okay? That, and, it, you know, he has wiped out basically the whole population before in the story of the flood. Right? And he's sovereign and he created life and he can take it away. But the point is here is he's, he's allowing this force of death to be unleashed. And I think, you know, we, we come to these types of stories and we sh with humility and say, you know, should I try to figure out what the locusts are, the, the horses? Should I do some mathematical calculation on all the numbers in the one-third? And I think the bigger lessons are probably more important for me and probably for you we should believe that spiritual forces exist and not all of them are good. We should believe that there is going to be consequences. There's been mass death of humanity in the past and if we're living in la-la land if we don't think there will be mass death of humanity in the future. And at least God was honest enough to tell us, right? So, yeah, spiritual forces exist. And yeah, they can do damage 
major damage. And true protection is in God alone. And let's remember that outside of God, there's no real protection or peace. So that leads to, if this is all true, then repentance and non-repentance are really important matters. So we see these vivid descriptions in our chapter today. And with all the vivid descriptions, the words that stand out to me and maybe to you too start with verse 20. Let's hear that again with verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues openly repented and bowed down before God. Does your version say that? No. It says they did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see, hear, or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The pull of of being in control of our own life and being our own sovereign is strong. I want my own works. I want my own purpose. I, I don't want to use my works, my hands to serve God and his mission. I am the pilot of my plane, my ship, my life, whatever. I did it my way, right? It's so strong that people are seeing mass death and they're saying, well, those people just did it wrong. I'll be fine, right? It, it's like hearing that you have cirrhosis of the liver and deciding, I'm just going to drink even more. Humans wouldn't do that, right? Oh, yeah, right. It's like hearing you have the type of lung cancer that's caused by smoking and decide, well, then I'm going to go out smoking like a chimney, right? It's hearing that you are bankrupt and taking the very common advice, then max out your credit cards instead of admitting your problem and live with some integrity, right? It's, it's having deep troubles with your spouse, but refusing to admit that any of it is your problem. Humans wouldn't do that, right? It's knowing that your adult kids don't know Jesus, but being too afraid because you don't want to be awkward in talking to them about your faith and why you actually think that's the hope and the peace for all of life. But you don't want to make the relationship awkward. Could you imagine humans making choices like that? We do, right? Why? Because we want sovereignty. We want the illusion of sovereignty. Whether it's the illusion of peace at the Thanksgiving table where we haven't had the awkward conversations, whether it's the illusion that I can put into my body whatever I want and the illusion that it is your body, not God's. We want the sovereignty. Just like, just like the two-thirds of those people at the end time, and we, that's what we have to repent of. It's not your life, really. It's not really your body. It's your kids are not really your kids. Right? They have your DNA, but who made that DNA? So repentance is a major theme of the Bible because we keep choosing to have our own sovereignty. Right? And it doesn't work. If you trust Jesus with your life, if you believe that the story of Jesus is true, it, it requires turning from control of your own life, and we call that repentance. Turning from controlling your own life and admitting God is in control. And, and really, so repentance and non-repentance are connected to what I see as a theme here in Revelation, connected to the reality of, of where, who has sovereign control of my heart. Am I still hanging on to that? Or have I yielded my life to him and God has sovereign control of my heart? Humans on our own, we have the deep tendency of non-repentance, right? 
And repentance, the Bible teaches, is, is a change of mind, metanoia. Metanoia means a change of mind. It's a Greek word that you, you change your understanding, but it also has a sense of changing direction. So if you imagine, I, I heard in one sermon, if you imagine a train engineer and he's looking ahead towards a mountain and miles away and he sees that, that the train track, that the, some of the mountain has collapsed onto the train track and you cannot get through the mountain anymore. First, he needs a metanoia, a change of mind, like, I don't think we're going through the tunnel today. But if he keeps his idea there and doesn't put on the brakes and start reversing the engines, he's still going to have a problem, right? Right? So you need to allow spirit to change your mind, what you're thinking. My life is not my own. And if you you kind of agree to that idea in your head, but you, you are still going full steam ahead in charge of your life, you need to reverse the engines by the help of the spirit. Put the brakes on, right? And so repentance is different than things we also experience as human beings. Regret. I sinned and I got caught, and so I regret doing it. That's not repentance. You might have the idea in your head, I shouldn't have done that, but that's not a change of mind or a change of direction, right? Uh, Repentance is not embarrassment. Oh, boy, I never measure up, right? And so I'm going to try to pretend like I'm humble or something, but it's really I'm just embarrassed. No, repentance is, God, I need to... I need to have you lead my life. And I don't measure up, but you can help me learn. You can help me grow. You forgive me. So repentance is not embarrassment. It's not, repentance is not even a middle because a train engineer who, who admits that, the, the, that he can't go forward but keeps going, that's, that's no good, right? And so there are some people who profess to follow Jesus who've never surrendered sovereignty of their hearts. And that's what we call a false sense of salvation. It's the, it's, we see it in the false apology that Adam did. And some of you have been married long enough, you know what false apologies are, don't, right? Uh, but Adam has the, like, the first one in history, and it's classic, right? He, God's trying to keep Adam accountable for this whole forbidden fruit deal and why Adam fell for it. And he not only throws his wife under the bus, he throws God under the bus, right? And he says, it was the woman you gave me, God. Right? The first husband non-apology he does not say woe is me who am i to live in your perfect existence i should not have done that i should have served eve better i should have thought about that i don't even deserve to exist and god forgive me but that's not the story we're given we're given this instructive story about our human tendency to to cling to it even when we're caught right Maybe you have a little regret, but to say, you know what, it wasn't my fault. It was Eve's, it's that chick you gave me. And, and after all, you gave her to me, right? So it's your fault too, God. So why does God allow suffering? Because even when we don't suffer, we, we don't wake up. They weren't suffering in the Garden of Eden but they couldn't see their wrong, right? And God wants, longs for people to have their minds changed. He longs for all people to be saved, the scriptures tell us. He longs for all people to have their lives redirected to the good, to the holy, to love, to him, right? If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 12, one of the scarier scriptures of the Bible, but scary is often good in the Bible. Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 31-ish, 32. 
tells us about the sin that can't be forgiven. There's a sin that can't be forgiven. Sin against the Holy Spirit. Starting with verse 31, Matthew 12. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And then it says this, either in this age or in the age to come. And these are the words of Jesus, the very forgiving Savior whose blood was shed for us, right? Very merciful, very forgiving. But he's saying this, I can't forgive you if you won't listen to the Spirit's conviction of sin. If you won't listen to that, that suffering, that, that, that conviction that says, this isn't right, I'm, I'm living in charge of my own life. I, I shouldn't have treated somebody this way. I shouldn't have done that. If we don't listen to the Spirit's conviction, then we cannot be forgiven. And there are Christians who have never surrendered, I should say Christians in name, who have never surrendered because they, they never said, God, I'm a sinner and I need to change my direction and I yield to you. True faith will always lead to repentance. Now, there are some Christians who teach otherwise and that is a false teaching in my estimation. True faith always will lead to the Spirit causing us to repent because we see it right there. If you don't admit your need for God, then he can't forgive you. And that's exactly the situation of Satan. And that's exactly the situation of the two-thirds of the people at the end who, who won't, won't repent, right? They're always right. Never allowing God to change their mind. Don't be that person, right? Don't be the person who never needs to confess sin, never needs to change your behavior. In your family, you're the one that's always right, right? And this is... this. This really comes home to me because that's me, right? And so I need to like openly admit, God, God help me. Tina's not leaving at this time for a reason, I hope. Okay. So non-repentance, the funny thing is, non-repentance feels like strength. It feels like strength, but it's false strength. Just like those people feel like they're living but they don't want to live. It feels like strength, but it's not. It's not real strength. Real strength is Jesus saying, when you're weak, when you're poor in spirit, then I can bless you. Then I can invite you into my kingdom, right? It's this false strength of admitting, I I don't admit failure, right, in our culture. We don't admit weakness. I don't back down to anyone. I'm sorry you misunderstood me as a thousand million husbands have said, right? These will not do. God just wants us to be honest and humble, admit that we are poor in spirit, that we fall short. No one, no one can do this on their own. We are created to need God. Our strength and protection is truly in admitting our weakness and our poverty. When we are weak, then we are strong. And if you are marked in him because you believed in Jesus Christ and his salvation, then you are going to have all the spiritual protection you need for whatever tribulation you go through in the present and whatever is to come. But in the meantime, we must live with humility, perseverance, and obedience. Let's pray. Lord God,
deepen us, convict us, and if you would, by your gracious and merciful ways, encourage us. If there's any way we need to repent to you, show us. Show us right now, if you would, Lord, before we take communion. Open our eyes. May we do all of this to honor and glorify you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I invite up our communion servers, I really want to tie our message today to a hard scripture that we don't use enough, I don't use enough with communion. And it's from Paul in his wonderful teaching on communion when he's writing to Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 11. And they are sinning, they're not sharing the Lord's Supper with one another as they should. And they're, they're, they're sinning even in the way they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. So I want to read to us from starting with verse 27. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks or eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself or herself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Friends, this is a meal that humbles us and should call us to examination and repentance. I want to invite forward the communion servers to come forward and uh, prepare to, to serve this meal, the meal that Jesus Christ gave to the church to teach us our deep need for him, that there's a brokenness between God and humanity, that it is our fault. God is sovereign over all of it, but he allowed us to fall short, to see that he could love us, forgive us, restore us, and we need the restoration he offers. So I, I, I really invite you today to use this meal and the, the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart, to us, to say, Lord, show me, convict me. If there's anything I need to repent of today, show me, teach me. But Lord, remind me that it, it, it's you that saves me, not anything that I have done. And I am a broken sinner without hope. Save that you came to rescue me. Lord God, bless this meal today. Thank you for the bread. As each person holds it, that takes it, may they reflect on your, on your broken body that hung upon the cross for us. And if there are people here today who choose not to take it because... They're convicted or they're going through a process with you, Lord. I know you love them. And I just ask that your Holy Spirit would help them through that process. So help each of us to examine ourselves today, Lord. With the leadership of your Holy Spirit, for you are sovereign. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you choose to take a piece of the bread, just take one and hold on to it. And then we'll partake of it together.
Jesus was with his disciples, wanting them to, to see that what was about to happen to him, he was doing as a, as a gift, as the way that we could be forgiven for our brokenness, for our sin. The sovereign God sent the very Son of God into the world to save us broken sinners. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Each time you eat of it, remember me. Lord, you taught us to repent and believe. Today, as we pass the cup, as we hold the cup, may your Holy Spirit remind us of the new covenant you're offering. That by turning to you and trusting in you, we can be heirs with Christ. But first, Lord, help us to admit our weakness, our deep need for you and that you are sovereign and that we are not. And if any way we've been defining something as good or holding on to so-called sovereignty in our life, Lord, as we drink this cup, may we just feel the Holy Spirit washing that away and that false power, that false strength just dissolving in the soul of any person that needs that dissolved, Lord. That not being untied, that bitterness being healed, whatever it is, Lord, for you offer us the new covenant. We are yours by your grace. I pray in Jesus' name.
Friends, there is a new covenant. 2,000 years ago, it's still new. It's ever new. It's renewing. Because the Son of God says, though you are sinners, I'll be your righteousness. Though you are broken, I will be your healing. Though you are lost, I will be the way you are found. He, though sovereign, became a servant and was tortured and nailed to a cross. And his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins because he wants us in this new covenant. Rejoice, friends, at the goodness of our God. This cup is the new covenant made in his blood. Each time we drink of it, let's remember him.